0: This is episode 1.38, Zeon Strikes Back. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and would you like to learn more about new types? Soldiers of Sorrow thinks you do.
1: I don't know if I can still use mine. (laughs) Oh no! And I'm Nina. After this movie, I would be very happy if I never heard the word new type again.
0: Honestly, I think that's perfect. We write our ands separately. We don't know what each other's ands are going to be. I have the advantage because I always go first.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 101 patrons. Woo! That's right. Just like the
0: Dalmatians.
1: (laughs) We reached the 100-patron benchmark this week. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Dr. Christmas, Grant G, Loghain, and Sparmanf. (laughs)
0: I'm doing the more than 100 patrons dance You should all consider yourselves lucky This is an audio media and not a visual one
1: Tom's not actually a bad dancer He just has no sense of tempo So if there were music playing It gets really disorienting Because his movements don't match the music at all
0: It's important to note I don't have zero sense of tempo I have negative tempo
1: (laughs) It's almost as if he's deliberately Not synced up to the music (laughs) If you wanted us to say your patron name correctly you shouldn't spell it s-p-a-r-m-n-f.
0: I think you said it beautifully.
1: If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord and bonus content you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash patreon.
0: You can also support us by writing a review and so I would like to thank Donald H on Facebook as well as Anna Troc, Araragi-san, and Lewis from Canada for their iTunes reviews. Thank you all so much.
1: This week, we are discussing the second of the three compilation movies for Mobile Suit Gundam. This one is called Soldiers of Sorrow.
0: Which is a pretty good name.
1: We will also be discussing calendars and some of the weird names that come up in the show. Before we dig into our discussion with Gundam noob Angela... Tom and I want to do a bit of an overview of the film itself.
0: So the last film left off at episode 13. It actually left off at episode 12, but it had moved all of the contents of 13 to just before that. So you would expect this film to open with episode 14. But episode 14 is time be still when a bunch of Xeon soldiers on WAPA's plant bombs all over the Gundam and then Amara removes them. It's usually considered kind of a disposable episode, and it seems like the movie creators went in the same direction. Time Be Still is completely gone. So it should then start with episode 15. But episode 15 is Kukuru's Doan's Island, and that got cut too.
1: Where it actually starts is with the same intro as the first film, followed by a recap of the events of the first film, even though the releases were only four months apart. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's long enough that maybe you don't totally remember what happened.
0: And then the first new scene is actually of MacVay's mine and his vase, which I believe comes from something around episode like 17 or 18. It is quite a ways forward.
1: Yeah, we get the new scene with McVeigh, the expanded scene with Rambaral and Haman, and that new scene of Revel and Elrond.
0: And that scene comes from the beginning of Matilda's rescue, which isn't until like episode 22, episode 23.
1: We dig into this a bit when we talk about the film with Angela, but one of the interesting things they did in this movie, one of the things that we appreciated is they cut together different episodes to make it feel as if their events are happening simultaneously
0: yeah, it makes the Battle of Odessa section, the Rambaral section, and the Macve section all flow very nicely together. It makes Matilda feel more integrated into the White Base crew and into the storyline. And we really liked what they did there.
1: With a few glaring exceptions. <laughs> There's no salt storyline. <laughs> they never run out of no. salt. They never go looking for Lob Lake.
0: They never have to meet a mysterious Federation messenger in the middle of a sandstorm.
1: They almost don't take part in the Battle of Odessa at all.
0: Yeah. It...
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're on the periphery the whole time.
0: The whole bit about drawing off McVeigh's attention, Amro discovering the Federation mole, and then the Gundam and the G-Fighter destroying the nuclear missile before it can detonate and take out the Federation army. All of that is gone. The White Base plays no functional role in Odessa except fighting along the periphery.
1: Amuro's desertion is considerably shorter. The episode in which he attacks one of the mines more or less single-handedly, thinking that he's ending the war, (laughs) uh, does not happen at all.
0: And a large portion of the following episodes where Amuro is in the brig and Ryu is trying to bring him around, that's also been removed. So we go from the extreme of Amuro abandoning the White Base, burying the Gundam in the sand, and basically getting a a bite to eat and running into Rambaral, straight back to, well, Amuro is part of the crew again, and everybody's working together. Part of the reason that feels weird is that part of what brought everybody back together was Ryu dying, but Ryu's death has been pushed much later in events in the movie, and so everybody forms that good functional crew again, even while Ryu is still alive. And
1: without all of the finagling that Ryu does, all that being an intermediary that he engages in, in the lead up to his death, that all gets removed. Unsurprisingly, most of Matilda's rescue gets removed, since most of that was a toy sales pitch.
0: (laughs) And the G fighter, the G parts, has been removed completely. It's been replaced by the core booster, which is just an upgrade for the core fighter.
1: Which I think is a shame. I like the (laughs) G-Fighter. They skip the trap of McVeigh.
0: So Bright never has his breakdown. Mirai never takes command. In fact, the Bright and Mirai storyline is tragically cut down enormously. There's no sense of a relationship between the two of them, either a romantic one or really any kind of a relationship. You know, except that Bright is the commander and Mirai is the first officer.
1: It changed a lot of their interactions in these episodes, in this film. (laughs) So that moment where they're discussing what to do about Amuro after he has really messed up in the field and ignored his orders, and they're talking about whether or not to take him off the Gundam, and Bright says to Mirai, I really want you with me on this, and he puts a hand on her shoulder. When they have an established relationship, that feels like an intimate moment. When they don't, it feels kind of creepy. Yeah. And when she shrugs him off, it's like, don't touch me, dude. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like, it feels much more like the way Mirai later treats Slager.
1: Yes. Similarly, when the line drops about her having a fiance, and she is sort of explaining it like, it was all arranged by our parents. I haven't seen him in ages. You know, everything has worked out better this way. <laughs> Feels more like the way you might explain to a coworker, like why they didn't know that you were engaged, <laughs> than like you might explain to a boyfriend <laughs> why they didn't
2: know you were engaged.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. The whole story of General Elran being a mole has been removed.
1: Mm -hmm. The Black Tri-Stars die in their first battle with the White Base crew. There's no uh, atomic bomb threat because that part of the Battle of Odessa never happens. Matilda does not get her own funeral.
0: In fact, there is no recognition of Matilda's death until after Ryu has died and the White Base does a sort of Bright calls it a funeral for all of the soldiers lost during the Battle of Odessa. Which, given the expanded role that Matilda plays in the movie, just feels that much more wrong.
1: I get the sense that we're meant to understand all of these battles happening one after another as part of the white bases, like, covering the rear position in the Battle of Odessa. Like, they keep being attacked by... Rumba, and then by the black tristars and then by hammond and this is all part of odessa but it doesn't really feel that way i don't think i don't mm-hmm. i don't feel like they set that up very well and they cut to narration and they cut to maps a few times to talk about it but and then we do get across the atlantic ocean
0: i think there's less to talk about in the latter half of the movie because basically everything happens almost exactly as it happens in the show with a few small deletions where things were combined.
1: Yeah, they combine a lot of Tragedy in Jabro and Wish of War Orphans. But they, well, I have two problems <laughs> with this section. <laughs> One, I don't think that Wish of War Orphans is as impactful if you haven't had Time Be Still. Watching the orphans, watching Kika and Let's Remove All These Bombs from the gyms feels much more important when, you know, part of, how they know how to do this is because they've seen the crew of the white base do it. Mm-hmm. They also cut out the whole confrontation that the orphans have in the child care center. So it's not super clear why they run away in the first place.
0: Yeah. They kept the action, like the exciting action part of that scene, the bombs and then the sort of car chase. But they cut out the impactful emotional bits of it and it just doesn't work as it is. It feels like
1: Mischievous kids.
0: Yeah, instead of feeling like a important character moment that was also comedic, it just feels like comedic relief.
1: I will say overall, I did not enjoy this movie as much as the first one. I didn't love the first one either. (laughs) This one was a slog.
0: It felt like this one was doing what you would expect the first movie to do and laying groundwork. There were so many conversations where people just like, said things that you need to know in a very un-Gundam dialogue kind of way. And the one that stuck out to us the most is when Kozan has been <laughs> captured. He's in the cell and Selah goes in to give him his tray of food and to ask him about the Red Comet. This is when she's been worrying about her brother. She's worried he might have died. They haven't seen him in a while. And so she, in the show, she goes in and she asks, you know, what about the Red Comet? Kozun basically just says, oh yeah, he's alive. And Selah is so happy, she goes to her room and she, she cries. In the movie, <laughs> it's like Kozun was an NPC in a video game and Selah came up and said, tell me more about the Red Comet. Because he just goes on this whole spiel about like, ah, you mean the Red Comet, Shar Aznable? Why? Some people say he's a new type. He was kicked out of the army, but I've heard that Kaecilia picked him up.
1: He's a wanderer, and somehow the fact that he's a wanderer is an indicator that he has a grudge on the zombies. (laughs) He's answering questions she's not even asking. Mm -hmm. Info dump.
0: We've got to make sure that the whole audience knows that this character, who's going to appear much later in the movie for like one scene, has a grudge against the zombies.
1: In case him getting karma killed didn't make that clear.
0: Yeah. In a similar vein, there were so many discussions about what a new type is
1: that didn't add
0: anything. <laughs> Nina, did you know that New Types are a philosophy developed by Zion Dekun? They're about the advancement of human life. They're the next stage of evolution, something something space. Would you like to hear this again in a few minutes from a different voice actor?
1: I go into my full rant about this in our conversation with Angela. I would just like to say they took a bunch of scenes that had other important moments in them and changed the dialogue to make it about New Types and not just about new types but about the same information we already have about new types or information we don't need. I was I for one was very disappointed that they got rid of the moment when Revel tells the crew of the White Base that they can leave military service but they'll have to be put in jail <laughs> because they know too many secrets. Mhm. And the part that that plays in prompting Kai to leave.
0: Yeah. I was disappointed because the conversation that Bright and Mirai have that Amaro overhears and is the reason he deserts in the show, what they're talking about is Amaro needs to grow up. And Mirai says, I think he's going to. I think he's getting there. And Bright says, we don't have time to wait for one kid to grow up. In the movie, it's like, do you think Amaro might be a new type? Well, I think he's really developing into one. We don't have time to wait for him to become a fully evolved new type.
1: Yeah. It felt as if it was the only thing of substance they talked about. And it replaced a lot of the strong emotional beats of the show with something that I didn't actually care about. So,
0: <laughs> Even if you come into this as the kind of Gundam fan who really, really loves that space magic. You just want space magic in all of your things. I can't imagine that this was satisfying to you. It's not like they said anything particularly interesting about it.
1: And then after the quote-unquote Odessa fights end, you're like, okay, maybe this is the end. And then it's not. And then after Across the Atlantic Ocean, you're like, okay, maybe they're going to end with Miharu's death. And then they don't. And then you realize they're trying to wrap up the entirety of the Earth-based portion of the story, which is about a third of it, before ending this thing. It was not a pleasant movie-watching experience, (laughs) is what I'm trying to say.
0: I was surprised by a couple of things in the animation. You know, in the first movie, we noticed how much new animation there was. In the second one, there was not nearly as much new animation. There was some, and it was beautiful, but there wasn't nearly as much. And a lot of the mistakes are still there. A lot of the goofs, a lot of the weird off-model drawings, especially of the goof, are still there. There's a particularly famous one in Jaburo where... Char in his Zagok destroys a Federation gym. It's the first Federation gym that we see get destroyed on screen, I think. And it's particularly famous because when the gym first appears, it's carrying a Gundam beam rifle, which the gyms don't usually use. And then when it's destroyed just a couple of frames later, it's carrying the standard gym beam spray gun. And so like, to fix this would have taken redrawing two seconds of animation, but they didn't do it. And since that was like one of the main goals of doing the movies, it's a little baffling.
1: As we noted earlier, they only had four months.
0: There were also some just baffling dialogue changes. (laughs) For some reason, Ryu now gets a three-rank promotion instead of a two-rank.
1: That's true. But why though?
0: (laughs) Unlike in the show, which made us wait until practically the last episode to confirm that Char is in fact a new type. We get people in this movie saying he's a new type. And then towards the end, he gets the new type Flash. So we know he is.
1: Also that uh, maybe the whole crew of the white base are. Just throwing that out there for no good reason.
0: They make it real explicit that Hamon is. They strongly imply that Matilda is a new type. Is there anyone in this movie who is not a new type?
1: I think Hamon was really done dirty by this movie.
0: Yeah, she was. Ramba too, but Hamon especially.
1: Her, Her whole revenge episode... Sorrow and hatred is so moving in the show. And all the buildup of that gets tossed out here. We just get her like narrating why she's doing what she's doing, which is not nearly as interesting as like seeing her prepare and seeing her talk to her crew. And then she does it and it doesn't work out. And we don't really care one way or another. Maybe just because of the pace of how fast it moved, it didn't feel as threatening to me as it had Mm -hmm. in the show.
0: In the show, there's a lot of anticipation, and then Hamon starts firing that cannon into the Gundam's back over and over again. Mm, like
1: Before Ryu is able to yeah. come save the day.
0: They also changed Rambaral's last words from now I'll show you how a soldier dies to this is what it means to be defeated in battle, which is just a bad change because Rambaral's death is the prelude to the deaths of Ryu and Matilda, both of whom die in battles that the white base wins. So Rambaral saying, this is how a soldier dies, that's foreshadowing. Rambaral saying, this is what it means to be defeated in battle, it just doesn't mean anything.
1: Also, this is how a soldier dies tells us so much about Ramba's character. This is what it means to be defeated is actually false. If he was willing to surrender, he would have been captured. Yeah. Uh, He didn't have to die. That was a choice he made.
0: I'm going to end on a positive note, though. (laughs) Okay. Having Amuro and Hayato wrestling in the dirt after Ryu's death and both blaming each other is a great addition to that scene.
1: Yeah, since they cut most of the moments leading up to Ryu's death, since it feels more abrupt, the old version of everyone blaming themselves wouldn't really have made sense. Because we didn't see him getting into the core fighter, even though Job John is like, wait, what are you doing? We didn't we didn't see him sort of getting past everybody and everybody having these opportunities to stop him that they don't manage. We just see him do the thing.
0: And without the scene from the prior episode where Kai and Hayato and a couple of other guys abandon ship and Ryu has to go back and get them. And then they all have to jump onto White Base. (laughs) that's right i've shown nina that video
1: it's so good now it's stuck in my head thanks very much
0: (laughs) you're welcome but without that yeah it doesn't make as much sense for everybody to be blaming themselves and having amuro and hayato fighting here adds a whole new wrinkle and a very interesting new dimension to the relationship between those two that is we're going to see absolutely key to their relationship so it's nice to have that coming in already
1: Okay, so this is episode 1.38, discussing Mobile Suit Gundam compilation movie number two, Soldiers of Sorrow.
0: And we are joined once again by our guest, Angela. Angela joined us in the previous episode to discuss the first movie, and she'll be back next episode to discuss the third movie. Thank you for joining us again, Angela.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Our pleasure. So we're gonna start today with a question that we didn't ask last time and we probably should have. Very simple, very open-ended. What did you think of the movie?
2: This one was unexpected. I thought after watching the first one that it would go a very direct route, Um, but this one just like, swerves to a <laughs> whole different plot and I was unprepared,
0: but very intrigued. And then it swerves like a couple different times yeah. through the course of the movie. What did you think it was going to be about?
2: I honestly thought, well, I knew there was another movie, but I thought they were just going to go straight to the point and go go to space and go fight the the Zeons. Okay. But this one was more, I mean, we didn't even see them in this movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the family, the, guy, the yeah, Zabi family. family. Yeah. This is all about like messing around on Earth.
2: Mm. I really enjoyed I know you you mentioned it before, but like to actually hear the music this time, (laughs) oh, so nice. The ballads. (laughs) I was just the brass section. I was just like, oh, there's a variety of instruments now.
1: (laughs) Fun little trivia bit that Tom found. This is one of the first uh, anime that Joe Hisaishi worked on.
2: Oh, well, there's there's where the ballads come from then.
1: (laughs) I could not get into the song at the end, though. The end oh, credits song. Oh, really? I liked it. It was so peppy with such dark lyrics.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I find that, that happens a lot in anime, though. It's like, all about death. currently, it's just like, oh, look at us. We're cute, magical girls. But oh, my gosh, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh.
0: Yeah, when I was listening to that song at the end, I couldn't get over the feeling that like I'd heard it before. Mm. Not that exact song, but like, something suspiciously similar to it, some other song, but I couldn't place it. Normally I would just let this go, but um, Gundam has like a bad habit of plagiarizing music. (laughs) I don't know that they did that in this case, but they definitely will do that later. And so every time I hear a song that sounds familiar, I'm like, what? What is this really?
1: I also thought it was familiar. I was getting more of like an American pop rock song vibe. Like maybe it's styled after a popular rock song from that time. More research required. <laughs> so you found the direction of it unexpected. Once it got going, what did you think of it? What did you think of the the story, the
2: flow? Well, I almost thought the, the character is almost kind of also do a, a 180 because I thought like maybe there's a time skip or something, but I don't think that was possible. Like they worked so well as a team from the second movie onwards. Like everyone was just like, yeah, I'm on this Gundam. I'm on this I'm on this part of the ship. I got this. Like let's just go and fight. And I was like, oh teamwork. Yeah, let's do this.
0: <laughs> uh, your instincts here are actually pretty good. There kind of is a time skip. Oh. Yeah, they disguise it, but the first quarter of the movie they take, I think, like six episodes and they just throw two of them away and they chop up the others and then rearrange them so that they're all sort of happening at the same time, mm. which means that a lot of stuff where they were like, the crew was broken apart and the the morale was failing and everybody was like abandoning ship and it was all falling apart. A lot of that just sort of disappeared. We still have Amaro who briefly runs away. Right. Um, so obviously they're not. Teenage angst. <laughs> <laughs> they're not working together all that well at mm-hmm. that point. But there is a bunch of the show that, that is missing from that section
2: okay I I definitely felt that a lot especially with a lot of the parts of Sela, at least in the beginning like the part when she took the Gundam and like she failed miserably with the Gundam but then the next time she was in the Gundam she was perfectly fine I'm just like where where was the where's the transition to all this how did she just all of a sudden master the Gundam
1: Even in the show, there's not much transition to that. The thing that they imply is that they have some simulators on board Mm. and that she's been practicing in a simulator. Oh, okay.
0: Well, and in the show, the second time she takes the Gundam out, she doesn't actually do that well. The movie makes her a lot more competent there than she is in the show. Mm. She struggles a lot to take out that one Zaku, and she's only able to do it with Amro, like, radioing instructions to her. Oh, okay, I see. But I realize as we're talking about this whole, like, beginning section of the movie, It feels like an entire movie unto itself, but it's barely a fraction of this movie. There's so much going on.
2: That was the surprising part, because with... I guess the bad guys were Raúl and Haman. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to feel about them because they weren't evil. They just wanted revenge, but then they liked Amaro. So what are you guys trying to do here? And then they just died and we moved on. And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess that was it. Did you feel like their deaths were kind of anticlimactic in the movie or... I wouldn't say anticlimactic. I don't think they were given room to develop. It was just like these two random people who were in love and wanted revenge on this one guy who we we never got to see them interact. So it was just like, why do they like him so much? And then they died for him. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. In the show, it's much clearer that they don't super care <laughs> about Garma. Oh. As a person. Uh, it is very politically advantageous mm-hmm. for them if oh, they can do this thing. And Ramba's just an old soldier and that's all he wants to be. But we get some hints that maybe Hammond has political ambitions or wants to move in those circles and that the better he does in the military, the more able she'll be to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the show, it feels very sexual when they meet Amaro. It's like oh. it's like oh. they're both flirting with mm. him a lot. Yeah, <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh. <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable.
0: Some of that survives into the movie. Some of that like, oh, is that the sort of boy you're interested in? And wow, it's really something to be liked by Haman. You should be like proud of yourself.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That scene was just. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what did you think of that scene?
2: I, thought, I wouldn't say flirting. I thought teasing. Like, oh, here's this cute little boy or not cute. I don't, uh, don't want to say predatory terms. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it was just like, Oh this boy's by himself, all oh, this poor thing. Um, let's like tease him a little bit and, and like give him a like something nice to eat before we head out and kill people. Um, but yeah, I didn't wanna not not flirting. <laughs> They do
1: seem very different from the rest of Xeon. It seems more about their sort of careers and less ideological. Mm. Like, Ramba is an old soldier, and this is what he does. He fights.
0: Do you th- did any of that survive into the movie? Did you get any sense of like I think them so. as, as characters?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was just, again, like, we don't see them interact with the family. So it was very obvious that they're independent people. But then it was just like, why are they here then? <laughs> Yeah, it gets glossed
1: over pretty completely. But McVeigh, the guy with the vase, is mostly
2: on <laughs> Earth. Sorry, it's just <laughs> the vase guy is poor, poor. Poor guys it will always be known as the guy with the vase. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... He's there running a
1: bunch of mines because Xeon doesn't have natural resources. Mm -hmm. They're a colony floating in space. So he's running a bunch of mining operations. He is doing a bunch of technological development. They have research facilities on Earth. And that's what he's doing there. Mm. Ramba gets sent there by one of the ruling family on this vengeance mission. And then... One part that felt very weird to me, I don't know if, if it did for you seeing the movie for the first time, but when Haman decides to attack herself, to like pilot a ship and take revenge. There's a lot of buildup for that in the show. It's an entire episode of its own. It's very clear that it's a suicide mission.
2: Does that come across? Um, it did at the obviously at the very end when she blows up. Um, mm-hmm. But I figured it was revenge because they were in love and she wanted to be with him in the end as well.
1: Yeah, that and and take out the the people who got him.
0: They are fan favorites, so it's really kind of a shame how um, little role they play in the movie.
2: Mm.
1: Backtracking a little bit, were there any scenes or like little arcs within the movie that felt out of place or
2: unnecessary? I know we'll talk about this later, um, but with Miharu, mm. it was kind of just like, well, like she was, I mean, I don't know if the trope was known back then, but it was like um, the girl in the refrigerator where she was just there to die, basically. Yeah, you know, it's like, okay,
1: cool, I guess. Let's do this. I think that was less of a
2: trope at the time.
1: Hmm.
0: The Miharu storyline does feel kind of out of place, doesn't it? I know from some interviews that the whole Miharu storyline, which, by the way, is there almost in its entirety, that was not cut practically at all. Oh, wow. Um, that was one of the director's favorite parts of the show. He like drew the storyboards himself, and he was weeping the whole time he made them. <laughs> so even though maybe it's not the most narratively crucial thing, it's hard to imagine that they would have cut that.
1: Well, and I was thinking of the Kika breaking the sink scene. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which actually serves a nice purpose within the show, but in the movie felt totally unnecessary to me. Wow. Well, what was the purpose in the show? In the show, Amaro has been feeling very isolated and Mm -hmm. taken for granted, and like he's not really part of the group. And so to have this scene where he helps out Mm. and like it feels as if they're all a a family living together on the ship sort of tells us like oh Amro is making those connections Amro is developing those attachments to these people mm-hmm. it's like a nice sign of him changing mm. by being on the ship whereas here it just felt kind of weird <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about the scene very near the end where the orphans disarm a bunch of bombs that have been placed in the mass-produced Gundam manufacturing facility
2: That was very random. (laughs) Are those guns going to be used in the future? Like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know about what the factory is down there, but Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, here's this random deserted factory that the kids randomly found because they were running away. How how old are these kids again?
0: I think they're four, five, and six.
2: Oh, wow. It's a little, I mean, it was obviously very unrealistic that that a four or five-year-old kid can even reach the pedal of a car (laughs) to drive away with bombs. (laughs)
0: Future Uh, cars.
2: (laughs) I thought this was like the whole Frabo and the orphans type of thing where it's like, oh, the orphans save the day Mm -hmm. in their own like a a little comedic, but also serious way.
0: Do you think it could have been removed?
2: No, because it kind of shows that they are useful and that they need to stay on the ship or like the reason why they want to stay on the ship is because they feel that they are useful.
0: Mm hmm. And did it make sense for you why they wouldn't want to stay in uh, Jaburo, in the underground no. base? No.
2: <laughs> it was like, mm, maybe you shouldn't listen to kids and <laughs> be adults and decide what is best for them until they are a certain age.
0: <laughs> this scene in the show the the like child care officer who's in the underground base mm-hmm. convinces them to go to the child care facility and it's really like nice I'm putting quotation marks around nice for our mm-hmm. listeners um, there's like toys and books and slides and there's a robot that dispenses juice and soft serve ice cream. Um, But all the kids who are there are, like, completely shut down and alone and isolated and just, like, sitting by themselves playing quietly or reading. And they get into a fight with one of the other kids there. And it's just, like, this is a horrible place for these kids where, yeah, it's, like, safe and nice, but... Their parents never come to see them. They don't get any socialization or interaction. Nobody cares about them, really. And so for Kika, Cats and Let's it's like, why would we want to be here when we can be on the white base with our family?
1: Mm. Where we get to be with our family basically all the time. And we have to work, but we get to have
2: fun. And we get to be with people all the time. And we get to help.
0: And that's why they run away.
2: That was one thing I like. I think it happened t- two or three times where they were being rowdy during in a very important meeting, mm-hmm. and it was like, is no one gonna talk or reprimand these kids? <laughs> <laughs> like, I I don't know what's what the point is. I mean, what do, do you that.
0: what can you do with a five year old who's making noise during a meeting?
2: There's, there's a lot you can do. <laughs> <laughs> and I know spanking has ended, but maybe spanking. <laughs> Clearly nobody has a problem with corporal punishment in the
1: universe of this movie. Fra tries to rein them in a couple of times.
2: She's not very successful.
0: Fra does not convey authority. She does not. Fra is not a powerful Mm -hmm. figure.
2: That was the downside. I feel like I did not see Fra at all in this movie. Besides for taking care of the kids.
0: That's a good point.
2: After Sayla gets
1: her jet fighter... Fra takes her old comms position on the bridge, Mm. but I think that's it. We see her do some, like, I need a damage report from level three, or, you know, Mm -hmm. we see her there working. She's not really involved in the story much.
0: But you know who is involved in the story a lot now? Kai and Hayato. Those guys. Well, and Ryu, too.
2: I know their names now. (laughs) They have personalities.
0: (laughs) And what do you think of those?
2: Um... I don't know if Hayato has the least development or if that's his actual personality. Like I know he's obviously a very strict person, um, but I think that's about all I got from him was that he's a very strict person.
0: Except for that fight he gets into with Amuro.
2: Mm. But that just shows that he had a get a nice connection for you, but...
0: I'm glad that came across. In the show, it's very much in the background. Like, you see the two of them together, but it's a scene that's focusing on something else. They're just, like, there hanging out in the background. Mm -hmm. It's the thing you pick up on because you're seeing it over and over and over over again. I'm really glad that the movie was able to, like, convey that Mm. in a similar subtle kind of way.
2: And then with Kai, unfortunately, we had to see someone die in order for Kai to show more of himself, I Mm -hmm. feel like. Um, although it, I did like the fact that I forget what he said, but he was just like, "Why? Why does everyone want to stay on this ship?" Because that's <laughs> a pretty valid point. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I I would leave too <laughs> if I had <have> a chance. <laughs> this is one of the things that they
1: changed that I don't agree with them changing. Uh, that scene right before he decides to leave, where they're having the big meeting. Mm-hmm. Somebody asks in the show. Somebody asks the general what if we want to leave? And he says, oh, well, because you're all now like privy to state secrets, we would have to keep you in jail for at least a year, maybe two. Oh, wow. If you're not staying in the military and fighting, then mm-hmm. you will be put in prison until the war is over, basically.
0: Whereas in the movie, they make it yet another discussion about new types.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you feel like there were a lot of those?
2: Which is so funny because they kept bringing it up. And I was like, okay, so can someone actually like show me research, show me proof <laughs> of what a new type is? And and no, the answer was no. <laughs> and they,
0: they, they kept like almost saying things about it, using a lot of words mm. without really conveying any information.
1: Two hilarious points. Point one, in the show, the word new type has not been mentioned yet. In any of these episodes, the word new type won't be mentioned for many episodes more. What?
2: We're already two thirds of the way. (laughs) Correct. So I am kind of correct where they just literally swerved onto a, whole different topic here
0: they're literally taking important conversations from the show they're using the same animation they're putting it in the same place in the movie but they're changing the dialogue so it's about new types instead of about whatever other thing they were talking about before
2: so then am i am i missing anything
0: (laughs) i mean yeah of course
2: okay (laughs) the other thing we have
1: had numerous people mention in the movie that Amuro's a new type. That maybe the entire crew of the White Base are new types. Yes. That Char is a new type. None of that happens in the show. <laughs> Do you know what we get in the show? I don't know if you noticed this. Occasionally, characters, especially during fights, will get a little like flash, mm-hmm. a little spark over their like goggles or over their face. Have you did you see that or right, notice yeah. that? That's the only sign we've had that that anyone is a new type.
2: Oh. I thought that was like a, you know how in, in Western animation, it's like a light bulb. It is
1: because it's like, oh, I've noticed something. Or, mm. oh, I'm, my perception is so strong. I'm reacting to something I can oh, feel but not I see, see. I see,
0: <laughs> And it's actually really, really clever because that convention of like, oh, that's just a visual trick that animation uses to show us that someone has noticed something mm-hmm. is what fools you into not noticing that it's important right. at first until you've been seeing it for a while. It's very subtle how they do it in the show. (laughs) When we were covering it for the podcast, we had all these back and forth, all these debates, like, oh, we have all of this evidence. Could this person be a new type? Could that person be a new type? Is there a connection between these two characters? And the movie is just like, nope, everybody's a new type. (laughs) Everybody's connected to everybody.
1: Everybody knows all about new types. All the governments know. Everybody knows. We know all about it. Tom can back me up here, but by a third of the way through the movie... I was going, oh, my God, shut the f*** up about new types. (laughs) (laughs) Stop talking about new types. Well, because it was boring. Mm -hmm. They would say the same three things over and over again.
0: Ah, you mean that philosophy? The one about space-noids? The
1: one about how they are the evolution of humanity?
0: Something, something, Zeon
1: And the show had been so subtle and had done such a good job of showing us rather than telling us mm-hmm. and just hinting at things and letting us wonder. And here it's the exact opposite. They try to tell us everything so you don't even notice the little visual cues because why would you? And there's no mystery.
0: Except the mystery of... What are they actually talking about? <laughs> what does any of this actually mean? It's like the force. The more you try to explain it, the less interesting it is. Ah, new types. They're powered by midichlorians.
1: Minowski particles.
0: <laughs> yeah, the creator of this, Tomino, has from time to time made comments in interviews to the effect that, like, I wish I had never created new types. Oh, like, wow. I wish I had never introduced them into my story. Because once they're out there, it's all everybody cares about. Mm. And so everything is about new types. And maybe now we should talk about those three crucial deaths Mm -hmm. in the movie. And so the ones we're talking about are the deaths of Matilda, Matilda. Ryu, and Miharu, which is the order they go in in the movie. Mm. It's not the order they happen in the show.
2: Okay, can I just say one thing? This sounds absolutely terrible, but the way they all died was a little funny. (laughs) (laughs) Just flying like straight like they're sleeping into the sky hair flowing magically and i'm just like what is going on
0: that would be the death of miharu
2: yeah <laughs> though also in the movie matilda
1: matilda mm. goes like matilda's flying, also flying s- seemingly unharmed which is weird because <laughs> the cockpit of her ship got crushed
2: yeah so i was like why was she flying out if was being crushed downwards.
0: I mean, the powers of new types are mysterious.
2: (laughs) Okay, but back onto the subject.
0: Let's start with the first one. Let's start with Matilda. Mm -hmm. How did you feel about how that played out? I know you loved Matilda.
2: Yeah, it was all about her in the first movie. And And she had
0: quite a big role in the first, you know, fifth of this movie.
2: Mm. Which is why I was surprised that she was axed so quickly. Because I felt like she was the one kind of directing them where to go. Mm -hmm. And then it was... Just like, well, okay, I guess she's dead. Um, but it was also interesting because she was obviously one of the main reasons why Amaro was there, um, or like in a good mood, willing, willing to work. <laughs> yeah. Like stay on focus. Like she, and and like a lot of the crewmen obviously liked her a lot. So she was good for morale. So I was surprised when, again, when she died and there was no response.
0: Yeah. Leaving aside the the aftermath for a second, but her actual moment of death, the way it happened, did it feel meaningful? Did it feel worthwhile? Worthy of the character?
2: No, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I liked her a lot, so I wanted her to. If she was gonna die, I wanted her to go out with a bigger bang, like mm-hmm. her killing someone big as well, and like bringing them down with her or something else. Not just a lot. Of, a lot of deaths were to protect others, and that that is a noble death. But it was just like. I don't know. I already don't like Amuro, so it was just, OK, I guess I guess save that guy. Uh,
0: <laughs> did you feel like it was necessary, like that if she hadn't done that, Amuro would have died, or something else bad would have happened?
2: I guess that's the thing. I don't know uh, with the anime, but it's just I don't see them training all that much. So I, I'm still not sure what Amuro's skill level is. So whether he could have saved himself or not, or maybe if someone else could have saved them, I'm not sure what the answer would be.
0: Mm-hmm. And we really do need to talk about the mourning for these characters or the lack thereof. But Mm. before we do that, we should also talk about Ryu.
2: So one thing, I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention for one part, but did we see him get hurt?
0: He was shot during the hand-to-hand combat scene. Oh, okay, okay. He shoots Ramba and Ramba shoots him. Mm -hmm. That's why he's injured.
2: Oh, okay. I think one of the downsides is when you watch a lot of TV shows, you kind of know when they start focusing on a certain character, it's like, hmm, this is a death flag right here. (laughs) I was like, oh, all of a sudden, Ryu's name is being said a lot here. What's going on? Yeah,
1: you start to pick up on those patterns, on those little indicators (laughs) in the story.
0: Although sometimes you get a character like Matilda, and you think, oh, this person's going to be around for a while.
1: I guess with Ryu, we have another scene where did it feel like his actions were necessary? Did it feel like he was really saving the whole white base?
2: Oh, his death scene? Yeah. So since I feel like I didn't get to see enough of him in movie one, movie two was kind of just, I don't know whether this was his, pers- his character, but it, all of a sudden he was like so worried about everything and like wanted to be a part of everything. So he was very gung-ho about getting out there even though he was injured. And I felt that was kind of oddly tacked on. Um, but maybe that is his personality. I just didn't catch that because of watching the movies. Um,
0: That's why you're here.
2: Yes. <laughs> There's an entire episode
1: or an episode and a half that is Ryu trying to patch up relationships between everybody on board. Aww. Because he's a little older mm-hmm. than the rest of them. He might even be a little older than Bright. Uh, so he's one of the most senior <laughs> people oh, on board. Oh, so he was like the big brother. And is really trying to like patch things up between Amuro and Bright and patch things up between Amuro and Hayato Mm. and get everybody to be on the same team. (laughs) It's really important to him to help turn them into a crew. Mm.
0: And that thing you pointed out at the beginning about how it feels like there's been a time jump because suddenly everybody is working together. Mm -hmm. That's what Ryu accomplished.
2: Oh.
0: And it feels weird and you feel like you missed out on some Ryu stuff because you did. You missed out on Ryu doing all of that. (laughs) Although, in fairness, part of his method for accomplishing this is to punch Kai really hard in the face and to punch Amuro really hard in the face.
2: I mean, uh, it was effective, apparently.
0: Like you said, big brother.
1: (laughs) So I wanted to talk about the scene right after he's died where all the crew are outside near the Mm -hmm. wreckage of his ship. But before I talk about
2: things that changed and what I thought of it, what did you think of that scene? That was nice. We had our, like, it was kind of, the first time we see people mourn, um, especially since with Hayato, like I said, he was a pretty one-dimensional char- one character, and then seeing him actually like fight and get in trouble with Amara was like, oh, people care. <laughs>
1: the TV show version of that scene has a lot more crying, mm. no fighting, and what Sayla says is completely different. Oh. Because... In this one, Selah makes a comment about, you know, fighting's not going to bring anybody back from the dead. Right. In the show, some of them have been feeling really ambivalent about the war, which is natural. They hadn't really wanted to be soldiers in the first place, and they got kind of thrown into it. And they're clearly being taken advantage of in a lot of ways by these adults. But Sayla has this realization and gives almost like a stirring speech to everyone after Ryu has died that the only thing that they can do to prevent more deaths like Ryu's is end the war.
2: Oh. That the
1: only thing that they can do to help is defeat Zeon. Mm. And so it does feel like in his death, Ryu puts one more step in the direction of unit cohesion. <laughs> Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's trying to achieve the same thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's another interesting change to that scene in the tone. And I'd like to know what you think about this. Because in the movie, Amuro and Hayato are like blaming each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In the show, everybody, and I mean everybody, like Bright, Amuro, Hayato, Job John, like the whole white base crew is out there and everybody is blaming themselves. Oh. Everyone is saying like, if only I hadn't been so selfish. Mm-hmm. If only I hadn't let Ryu go, he wouldn't be dead. It's my fault.
2: hmm that's an interesting change.
0: And they're all, like, sobbing. Uh, and then they keep yelling at each other not to blame themselves. Like, it's not your fault, it's actually my fault.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see maybe why they changed that because of the fact that they got rid of all the, the Ryu scenes, that them sobbing over someone that w- I didn't get to see personally would have been a little weird.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes sense.
2: So we get
1: that grieving scene, and we get the funeral, and... Did that leave any kind of an impression on you that um, they do like a flyby with all the crew mm. on the outside of
2: the ship?
0: Bright says something about like in tribute to all of the soldiers who we lost during the Battle of Odessa and they all salute.
2: Right. Um, it kind of felt like they were like an actual crew, <laughs> like they were official, officially in the army.
0: That's a really good read especially because a scene has been cut out there where the whole white base crew like meets with General Revel and they shake hands and it's like, welcome to the army now. Oh. But it happens right there. And like Mm -hmm. clearly it accomplished the same thing. Mm. So that's pretty cool. I wanted us to talk about Ryu and Matilda's deaths together like this, because in the show, they happen in the opposite order. Ryu dies several episodes before Matilda does. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Ryu has that funeral scene that Nina was talking about earlier, but then that, like, everybody mourning as they fly by, that's specifically for Matilda and her, like, the members of her crew mm-hmm. in the show. And so it's it's much more, it makes a lot more sense when Amuro is, like, screaming Matilda's name in his head as they fly away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because it happens in that very same episode, it's like, you don't have that same feeling of, oh, Matilda's dead and now we're moving on.
2: Right. Mm. then that makes sense in the anime where like ryu has his family in a more personal mourning setting mm-hmm. versus matilda who has the official salute and everything yeah
0: yeah i hadn't put that together that's mm. really good however there's one thing about matilda's death which is the like matilda ghost that hangs around <laughs> and like talks to amuro sometimes
2: oh so much do, cringe. You, have a
0: theory, do you have a theory on so that much
2: cringe uh, should I have a theory? I thought it was just I don't know. Like
0: is, like, is Amuro going crazy? Is that actually her ghost? Is he haunted? Is the Gundam haunted?
2: <laughs> was Matilda also a new type? Oh my god.
0: <laughs> was Matilda a ghost all along?
2: <laughs> my money's on Matilda's a new type. <laughs> no, but um, I just thought it was like typical like young adolescent needs... Needs some advice, so his conscience just pulls the closest adult that he remembers, and it just happens to be Matilda.
0: Weird that it's not his mom. No, not actually weird. No, in, well, in his mom
2: kind of sucks. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amaro is just constantly seeking mother figures for some reason.
1: <laughs> so I think part of the reason the show creators find Miharo so moving. Is because she's kind of the first person since all the white base crew got roped into this, Mm -hmm. who we see who is in kind of a similar position to them. She lives in a neutral territory. She doesn't really want to be involved, but her parents have been killed and she's trying to survive. Right. And so, of course, we get that nice sympathy between her and Kai of like, oh, well, I understand trying to survive. Mm. (laughs) But once she sees that her actions put Children at risk, children who remind her of her own siblings. She can't live with that anymore and wants to help, wants to save them. And it leads to her death. If only she held on to that lever. (laughs) I get that they were in a hurry and stuff, but it does feel silly that that there's no safety (gasps) harness or railings or safety netting. I don't know.
2: Yeah, for real.
0: Maybe there is, but Miharu is not certified for gun parries. She doesn't know where the safety harness is.
2: Oh, yeah, that's true. She was literally just like yeah i can I can pull levers, yeah, I can do this. I'll get on the ship. No big deal <laughs> <laughs> she was
0: She was very insistent about getting on that ship. Mm. she wanted to pull those levers.
2: <laughs> I feel like because of the time period we're in now that the trope has been played so often that I feel like we could have had her and let Kai grow and both be happy.
0: <laughs> Someone has never watched Gundam before. <laughs>
2: Tragedy for everyone. <laughs> but it was nice to see, we got to see a lot of Kai that I clearly, I did not get to see at all in the first movie. Him meeting Miharu and him instantly knowing something's up. He's clearly intelligent. Mm-hmm. He, he knows how to survive.
0: And suspicious. Yeah. Cynical. <laughs> how else would you describe him after having gotten to know him a little bit better?
2: Does it mean to say like a rat?
0: No. Sorry. Like many New Yorkers, I find rats, <laughs> especially subway rats, very cute.
1: We refer to him as Mr. Mneah.
0: Mneah <laughs> is kind of a rat-like oh sound. Right? You can you can kind yeah. of get that. Yeah, from-
1: same. <laughs> <laughs> He's very
2: snide, very sarcastic. Mm-hmm. He's always teasing everybody. Mm-hmm. But then he instantly wanted to protect Miharu, like when when he found her. So, oh my god, that scene when she's hiding under the table, and he's just like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. Kaja <laughs> looks out, oh. <laughs> A plus job.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that first scene between the two of them when she's trying to get him to buy something from mm-hmm. her little basket, and he's just like, that doesn't look very good. <laughs>
2: Very honest. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I think it's obvious, but we're we're big fans here on Popal Suit Breakdown.
2: <laughs> Do they ever go to Miharu's siblings?
0: Th- no. Okay. However, I can tell you that there is a manga uh, that covers the fate of Jill and Millie. Mm-hmm. They turn out okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, they end up at an orphanage run by one of the characters you've met.
2: Oh, what?
0: <laughs> and I can't say any more because spoilers...
2: Does Frabo go open an orphanage? Is that what Frabo does?
0: Spoilers.
2: (laughs) Is the manga an official continuation or like a spinoff?
0: Gundam has a loose and flexible canon. Okay. (laughs) The gold standard for canon in Gundam is whether or not it's been made into an anime. Hmm. But the anime contradict each other all over the place. So you can't even rely on that. (laughs) Trying to figure out the canon just isn't worth it. (laughs) Just enjoy the ride. Everything's its own canon. (laughs) There was a fourth, but much less important death late in the movie when Lieutenant Woody gets oh, killed. Right. What did you think of that?
2: Completely unnecessary.
0: <laughs> no point at all.
2: Kind of. Well, because yeah, it was like man pride, I guess, that he wanted to go and save the day. But even Amro is <laughs> like, bro, what are you doing? Get out of the way. Like my Gundam's here. I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel very foolish. But we also get a
1: sense that he's grieving Matilda mm. and not perhaps in the most rational state of mind.
2: In the anime, do they show Matilda and him together at all or no?
1: So Amaro finds out that Woody and Matilda were engaged. Mm-hmm. We only see them together in Amuro's imagined wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but we know they were together for some time and, and planning on getting married very soon. Mm.
0: I mean, we only have Woody's word on that. He could be lying. Maybe he was just obsessed with her from afar. Uh, Maybe he was a stalker. Last week, when we talked about the previous movie, you suggested that it should have ended about 15 minutes Mm. early. When you were watching this movie, how many different times did you think, oh yeah, this is going to be the end? (laughs)
2: Because
0: for us, it was more than two.
2: I was going to say, it felt like after an hour and a half it was like okay so arc done arc done i see this and it was like okay another arc done okay 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 uh space okay oh okay well arc arc okay <laughs> <laughs> i i can see why they ended it there uh, mm-hmm. so that it was com- like all in one this is the earth arc um but yeah it felt weird because so much happened but it felt very episodic
0: yeah there's the there's like the whole Odessa section mm-hmm. with Rambaral and McVeigh and Matilda and then And then there's the whole like Ireland and then Ocean section with Miharu. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole underground Jaburo section, like three distinct movies. And maybe they could have put two of those together to make it work, but it, it was so long. Yeah. And it felt longer than its runtime because so many different things happened.
1: hmm This is perhaps just a product of the original storytelling. But the first movie felt like a cohesive or semi cohesive narrative. Mm. It felt like there was a through line from
2: beginning to end. This movie really didn't have that. Yeah. I mean, there was, they had to have an actual narrator come in like three times.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah. If you had to like summarize the story of this movie, how would you do it?
2: It'd have to be like a really vague summary. Like it's just Amuro and the crew go to the underground fortress with some trouble along the way. No. <laughs> because, because otherwise you'd have to give an like entire essay about what actually happened.
0: Do you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer accidentally obtains the uh, like the scripts for an entire season of this soap opera? I don't think so. And every single one of them is just like a one sentence set up and then with sexy results. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that sounds about right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amuro and the gang go to Jaburo with violent results.
1: (laughs) Tragic results. I think if we're going to be true to Gundam, it should be tragic results.
0: I mean, the movie is called Soldiers of Sorrow. Mm.
1: I will say for us, it felt interminable. I think about half to two thirds of the way through, we were completely done. We just wanted it
2: to be over. (laughs) I mean, I won't lie. Usually I try to watch movies in one sitting but i I watched an hour saturday and then i was like okay i'm gonna take a break and then i got half an hour yesterday and half an hour today i was like okay i finished that's legit yeah there's no need for you to suffer in the way that we suffered
0: we did watch maybe a third of the movie on one and a half time speed (sighs) cheaters (laughs) we've seen all this before
1: (laughs) They already sped up all the combats. It didn't feel all that weird.
0: And some of the music, we noticed that, again, the music has been sped up. If you could have picked anywhere in the movie to end it, that would have felt like a good ending.
2: See, I agree with the ending. I'm not sure I agree with how they got to the ending. Because it it was three arcs that will lead them, I'm assuming, to to space. So, I don't know, they'd have to cut something out.
0: So, cut something from the middle, keep the ending. Mm. Okay. Did you like it? No is an acceptable answer. You're not required to love Gundam here, but you are required to keep watching
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> just one more.
0: <laughs> Until it, the next it's set. It's not the
2: worst thing I've seen. Like I said, I like I got to see characters this time, which was great, but it, it was just, I think I would have preferred watching the episodes instead of the movie.
0: Okay. Yeah, us too. <laughs>
1: The world of Mobile Suit Gundam is not so different from our own. As we've talked about throughout our watch-through, it contains reflections on a possible future. Things that seemed possible or even likely, looking to the future from 1979. And by giving the time of the story as UC0079, the writers invite us to compare the two times very directly. There's a very sensible story rationale for creating a new timekeeping system for the show. Stories that don't do this automatically feel more dated when the time that they reference has come and gone and is nothing like the world of the story. But if we dig into the history of timekeeping systems, will we find other reasons for the world of the show to be in the universal century?
0: I'm just remembering the opening to The Transformers, the movie, which we've referenced before, because it opens with a big like Star Wars-style scrawl, and it starts with, It is the year 2005.
1: (laughs) Well, 2001 Space Odyssey, when the year 2000 felt like an impossibly long time away. As one of my sources pointed out, there are dozens of different calendars in use now, throughout the world, and the adoption of a new calendar system is an extraordinary event. The establishment of the Gregorian calendar as a worldwide standard took 300 years.
0: And a surprising amount of bloodshed.
1: The Gregorian calendar is the one that is most familiar to most of us, but there's also a Hebrew calendar, an Islamic calendar, Chinese calendar, Indian calendar. Parts of the Gregorian calendar were derived from the Julian calendar.
0: And the Japanese calendar, which just reset.
1: The earliest calendars were used to regulate hunting and agriculture, and most calendars in history have been associated with religion. Calendars are also typically based on astronomical observations or calculations, you know, Earth's rotation, changes in the phases of the moon, etc. It would be classic Earth Federation to keep all the timekeeping and calendar Earth-centric. But there's a distinct secularism to the world of Mobile Suit Gundam. I can't think of a single time anyone mentioned gods, spirits, or religion of any kind. The closest we get to any sort of obviously religious practice are grave markers in the shape of crosses.
0: And there are those people who kind of look like they might be priests at Garma's funeral, but we don't really know anything about them.
1: So it seems unlikely that the new timekeeping has anything to do with religion. Many calendars throughout history have counted their years in cycles, with each cycle corresponding to the regnal year of the sovereign, in the same way that Japan still counts years within each emperor's reign. Some calendar systems don't count years at all, but name each year for a significant event that occurred at that time. Are you thinking, are you laughing? I'm thinking of
0: Discworld. Yeah.
1: The year of the anchovy.
0: (laughs) The century of the fruit bat. Oh no,
1: century of the anchovy, century of the fruit bat. And then the years are things like year of the notional serpent. (laughs) It's so good. But most relevant to our purposes, most calendars count years from a chosen moment of historical or mythological significance. The Gregorian calendar was initially developed to make it easier to keep track of when Easter is. Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. The first council of Nicaea had decided that Easter fell on the Sunday following the full moon that follows the spring equinox. So you had to calculate the spring equinox and then the full moon and then the Sunday after that. (laughs) And it was in the year that we now call 525 that a monk named Dionysius created a set of tables for calculating the date of Easter and included a new year counting system, which began counting from the birth of Jesus Christ, with the years labeled anno domini, or year of our Lord, how he calculated the year of birth for Jesus Christ, we're not sure. He never actually wrote that part down.
0: <laughs>
1: it's assumed that he was using a bunch of astronomical information about, like eclipses and the alignment of certain stars, and and sort of calculated that way. Uh, current historians put him pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the going numbers now are that Jesus was probably born in like four or six, somewhere around there. So it was you know close as these things go. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted a new system to replace the one that was currently in use, which also used the abbreviation AD. It was named for the Roman emperor Diocletian, and so was Anno Diocletiani. This was very deliberate on Dionysius's part. Diocletian had ruthlessly persecuted Christians and Dionysius wanted to remove him from memory as much as possible. The convention of using BC, or before Christ, for years preceding Anno Domini wasn't added until 200 years later, when the venerable Bede of Northumbria published his Ecclesiastical History of the English People in 731. A fact that came up that I find fascinating, there is no year zero, because Bede would not have been familiar with zero as a mathematical concept. The first published works we have that discuss zero as we think of it now are from Indian scholar Brahmagupta in 628, but the idea doesn't appear in Europe until several hundred years after that. But going back to counting from a significant historical or mythological event, the million dollar question is what happened in UC zero that they decided to count from there? And finally, there is the name itself, Universal Century, abbreviated to UC. It is a decidedly secular name, which also doesn't seem tied to any country, monarchy, or other recognizable group. For this reason, it made me think of CE and BCE, or Common Era and Before Common Era, which have the same year numbering as AD and BC, but remove the Christianity. These terms are far older than I realized, dating from a 1715 astronomy book. Common era as a term was also used interchangeably with vulgar era in a time when vulgar meant ordinary rather than crude, and vulgar era appears even earlier in a 1615 book by famous astronomer Johannes Kepler. Jewish people also commonly used CE for common era or Christian era when they used the Gregorian rather than Hebrew calendar. Hmm. Evidence of this shows up from the 19th century onwards, and it's been growing in usage since then, BC, BCE is preferred in many academic circles and within quite a few international organizations, and some style guides recommend or require it. It's worth taking a moment to think about why they chose this name. Perhaps UC Zero was the year in which the Federation became the governing body for humanity. The universal of universal century could speak not only to humanity moving to inhabit and explore the universe, but also to some kind of assumed universality of human experience through unified language, government, culture, and so on.
0: So this is actually something that is known, although it never shows up in Gundam the show.
1: So it's not a spoiler? No. You can tell me?
0: I can. It's background lore. Yay, background lore. (laughs) Um, Zero corresponds to the beginning of the colony construction initiative. So when the Federation government started building space colonies and humanity started its plan to eventually move out into space, that's when they established the UC system.
1: So it is tied into moving out into space, Mm -hmm. into the universe. Mm -hmm. I thought about that. But in the intro, they mention that it's only been 50 years since humanity was actually living in space.
0: It took a while to build the first colonies.
1: And that part hadn't occurred to me. I was like, so it can't be to when they first moved into space because that was only 50 years ago. That's neat. I'm left with one final question. Are they going to change the name once one century is up? Universal centuries. (laughs) Universal millennia.
0: Now telling you that would be a spoiler. We've talked about Gundam names before, haven't we? The weirdness of the names is practically a Gundam trademark. They're not all weird, but for every mulligan, there's a Shar Aznable. (laughs) Love it. Eventually, you get inured to it, and the merely sort of weird names get buried under the truly spectacularly weird ones. I've been doing this long enough that Bright Noah sounds like a perfectly reasonable name to me. I could see naming a child Bright.
1: In Japanese, it's actually a very common name. Really? Yeah, Hikaru, Hikari.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, not but not Buraito.
1: No, but it's easy for me to see how they would take a Japanese name and take an English translation of that name and be like, all right, there you go.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) For those of us in the West, we are less likely to notice odd names if they sound sufficiently Japanese. Sure, I might never have met any Kaishidens when I was growing up, but I'm sure that in Japan it's as common as John Smith, right? Did you know that Amuro was not a recognizable name for most of Gundam's Japanese audience?
1: I believe Japan is one of those countries that there are only certain characters you can use and only certain names you can have. You can't just Make something up.
0: It sounds Japanese enough, but Tomino invented the name. Sort of. There's a small island called Amuro in the Ryukyus, but according to Tomino, he only learned about it from a letter sent to Sunrise three months after First Gundam started airing. There is now a hugely famous Japanese pop star born on Okinawa who has the surname Amuro, Amuro Namie. But she was only two years old when Gundam started airing and was not yet famous. So where did Amuro's name come from? Well, there's a theory that his last name, Rei, comes from the famous Mitsubishi A6M Zero fighter. Zero, in Japanese, is Rei. I think this is a compelling theory in part because we can be pretty sure that Kai Shiden was named for another Imperial Japanese fighter, the N1K2-J Shiden Kai, or in English, the Violet Lightning, modified, and... Japan's first jet aircraft, developed late in World War II, was the Nakajima Kika, or Orange Blossom. It was a prototype and was only flown once before the end of World War II.
1: So, a baby.
0: Yeah, like a child plane. Back to Amuro, though. The model number of the zero was A6M. Pronounced in Japanese according to the official guide at the time, A is A. Six is Roku and M is emu. Shuffle those syllables around a little bit, and you have A-mu-ro. So if Amuro-rei is the A-roku-emu-rei, and Kai-shiden is the Shiden-kai, what about the other white-based pilots? Might there be a plane with a name that sounds like Hayato? Well, there's the Ki-84 Hayate. What about the huge but agile ryu Jose? A good parallel for him might be like an extra-large but nimble torpedo bomber, something like the B-7A Ryu
1: Hosei!
0: No, Nina, I said Ryusei. What about Seila, or Seira, as her name is pronounced in Japanese? Late in the war, the Japanese developed a submarine-launched dive bomber called the M-6A Seiran. There's nothing in the design of the plane that really makes me think of Seila but the operational history of the Seiran is a slightly different matter. The Seiran was developed in tandem with a Japanese submarine aircraft carrier called the I-400 that was intended for raids on American coastal cities. By the time the project was done, the war had turned badly against the Japanese, and so they planned to use the whole force in one massive raid on the Panama Canal, hoping to disable that vital link in the Allied supply chain. But by the time the force was assembled and ready, the target was changed again to an American base in the Western Pacific. On the verge of defeat, and driven by desperation, the attack force broke the laws of war by disguising their Seirans as allied planes. Like a daughter of Zeon in a Federation uniform. Word of Japanese surrender reached that small fleet of submarines before they could launch their attack. So they turned around and headed home, but not before jettisoning all those disguised planes into the ocean, since, you know war crimes.
1: That was a very neat discovery. (laughs) I don't even remember how that came up. I feel like you were just researching planes, and you were like, wait a second.
0: (laughs) It was actually one of our patrons in our Discord who pointed out that the Kika might be the origin of Kika's name. From there, I started looking at the other characters.
1: Next time on episode 1.39, Encore. Encore. Mobile Suit Gundam movie number three, Encounters in Space. Still more things that definitely were not in the show. New types, new types, new types! The real, actual battleship Yamato. How Indian religions influenced a new age philosophy and The end of the end of the beginning. Will you be able to survive?
0: make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, gundampodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The main message of Soldiers of Sorrow is, Don't be a redhead in wartime. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
1: But other than... Oh, Matilda and Hammond.
0: And Hammond And Miharu. Haman's, Haman's blonde, but Miharo and Matilda both die. Mm.
1: But we haven't lost Kaecelia yet. I feel like that's the... We
0: didn't even get Kaecelia. The kicker. She that's didn't true. Even no, appear in this no movie. No Kaecelia. If she had, she would have died. <laughs> that's why she didn't appear. That's why they <laughs> had to remove Zeon's secret mine.
1: They had to save her for later.
0: Yeah, from the redhead curse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Insert funny sound here. said some other super or like he was trying to be thing when they're fighting in Jabaro oh, and he's like yeah. I'm gonna kill all these Zeons <laughs> for Miharu
0: honestly it's like the forest it, the forest
2: it's basically like if this was a, like a comic books like everyone's basically an X-Men without knowing what X-Men are
0: So it took about four months to produce this.
2: Wait, sorry, to my knowledge, it usually takes about five years to make an animated movie for pre-production and post-production. I know this is obviously mostly reused footage, and I'm sure they already had an idea of what they were doing. But four months. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Funny story, I was telling my brother about the podcast, and Mm -hmm. he was like, oh, you wouldn't know it. It's like just the original Gundam Gundam TV show, and he's like, "Oh, Amuro Ray," and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) "I thought I had one up to (laughs) you."
0: Well, he has not been Uh, on a Gundam podcast yet, so.
1: (laughs) Tom and Nina just sounds better than Nina and Tom. I don't know why.
0: The patriarchy, (laughs) probably.